0: Our Scripture reading this morning comes from Psalms 139, verses 1 through 18. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, And the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me." When, as yet, there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Welcome. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, if you're new to the Painted door, my name is Mark, one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, and welcome also to what is the seventh Sunday of the Easter tide season. Some of you may know, some of you may not. Easter is a 50-week celebration traditionally for Christians, and we are now in the seventh Sunday, uh, beginning that final week of the Easter tide season. This is also known as the Sunday after Ascension Day. Ascension Day was just this past Thursday. That's the day in the church calendar. When Christians all over the world celebrate and remember the ascension of the Lord Jesus, Jesus ascended back into the heavenly realm with his Father, back to the realm where he came from 40 days after his resurrection. And so as Christians, we remember and celebrate that day 40 days after Easter, which happened just several days ago on Thursday, this past Thursday. Now, we didn't have the occasion as a church to gather on Ascension Day this past Thursday, so I want to use today, the Sunday after Ascension Day, as many churches do, to highlight that crucial doctrine of the ascension of the Lord Jesus. It's often an overlooked doctrine. Uh, We focus much energy and attention on the birth of Jesus, certainly around the Christmas season, the life of Jesus we make much of as we look to him as our example and notice his miracles and his teaching and his healing. Of course, we look at the cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the great atoning sacrifice for sin, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, his triumph over sin, triumph over the grave. Uh, And then many of us spend much time as Christians thinking and talking about the expectant return of Jesus when he's coming back. Uh, But the ascension of Jesus gets overlooked often in our theology and our understanding of redemptive history and why it was that Jesus ascended back to his father. It's strange, I think, that he did. Why did Jesus leave the earth after having resurrected and triumphed over death. Why was that the moment that he determined he would leave us be here? Sort of to pick up the pieces and put the puzzle together of what his life and ministry was even about. The entire trajectory of Jewish history to that point was built on expectation and anticipation of the arrival of a great king who would usher in the kingdom of God. It would bring the kingdom of God to the earth. Jesus arrived, opened the Old Testament scriptures, specifically pointed out all of those expectant, anticipatory promises about that king, and said, That's me. Explicitly declared, I am that king, I am that Messiah. I have come to do all that you were expecting, all that you were hoping, to usher in the kingdom of God, to bring the kingdom of God from the heavens to the earth, and now here we have Jesus immediately following, 40 days following his triumphant resurrection, leaving. Kings, typically, if you study history, upon having defeated their enemies, take advantage of that moment to begin building. Once you've defeated your enemies, that's when you begin to form and shape your kingship, your kingdom. Why didn't Jesus take advantage of that great victory over the grave to begin building a movement, to begin establishing the church? He ascended and left his followers, his disciples, completely bewildered, having to put the pieces together. We don't get the coherent narratives of the New Testament for many years after the ascension of Jesus because everyone was simply lost. Our king left. At the moment when he most could have led us and shaped a new reality on the earth, he just left. He left us here. To figure it out on our own, seemingly. Why? It's really strange, actually, that he would leave like that. Rather than using this undeniably powerful vehicle of a present resurrected man in the flesh to bring about a great ministry of resurrection. What better vehicle could there be? for establishing a ministry of healing and redemption, of resurrection on the earth, then a resurrected man in the flesh. Jesus forwent all of that, forfeited all of that in his ascension. What's more, the strangeness of this ascension, the Jewish people and all the peoples of the earth in the time of Christ were longing for an encounter with God, They were longing for an encounter with God. In fact, that's something that's intrinsic in all peoples, not particularly unique to the time of Christ. There's something inherent in us that longs for an encounter with the person, with the being who's responsible for all of this, who has shaped all of this, who's fashioned our world in the way that it is. We want to know him or it or her, whatever it may be. We want to encounter that God. Even people who claim they don't believe in a God want to encounter that God. They want to question him. Why did you set it up this way? Why did you shape it this way? Why is there so much suffering in the world? People are hungry Don't be fooled by the current trends in decreasing organized religion. I think we can confirm in our day mistakenly as we look around at decreasing church attendance in the Western world, we think perhaps the hunger for an encounter with God is on the decline. Not true. Organized religion being on the decline has almost no bearing on the hunger in the human soul for an encounter with God. There continues to be, in our nation alone, $600 million worth of religious books sold on an annual basis. That's about $2 a person annually spent on religious books. At that rate, over the course of adult lifetimes, we would expect that every person Man, woman, and child in our country would have an entire library of religious literature by the end of their lives. And indeed, most of us, probably a lot of us, do assemble that library over the course of our lives, at least read that library over the course of our lives. There is a deep hunger, a longing to know God, to understand him, and that's intrinsic to the story of humanity. Even if in certain moments, culturally, we have nowhere to look. That's really where we are now, culturally. There hasn't been necessarily a decrease in the longing to encounter God. There's just more and more confusion about where He is, where we can find Him. I would liken our culture to a person who is running late for work and has lost their keys, if you've ever been in that hapless situation, running from room to room, turning over every laundry basket and pillow cushion. Of course, the insanity of this increases with each child who lives in your home because your keys might very well be in the toilet, say, or some other God-forsaken place. There's a panic that starts to happen. I know my keys exist. I just don't know where to look. I don't know where to find them. That's how I would describe the current spiritual moment in our culture. There's an earnest knowledge of God's reality, but a desperate scramble to turn over every possible place where he might be. We're trying on new spiritual practices and enterprises every day, many people are. Like my favorite author, J.D. Salinger who drove himself crazy in search of God in that way. It's like our whole culture has followed in his footsteps. Nevertheless, there is this deep, intrinsic longing to know God. It's the story of humanity. It's the story of humanity now. It was the story of humanity in the ancient world. We see it clearly expressed in the writings of the psalmists, And as we turn to highlight the Ascension, the doctrine of the Ascension today, I want to use the Psalms as a backdrop for that. If you've been here at all, you know that we've been focusing on the Psalms, this great book of prayers and songs from the Old Testament, really since last fall. And the Psalms provide for us, I think, a perfect backdrop to highlight the doctrine of the Ascension. We read in these Psalms this longing to know God, this longing for God. I want to look at three psalms in total today. King David, the author of all three of these. King David authored, some of you know, about half of all the psalms. 76 are credited to him out of the 150 psalms. And David's psalms, his psalmic writings are replete with cries for God to be near. The cry of the human soul that God would reveal himself, that David might know him. David knows in his bones in these Psalms that God is real, but he's desperate to have a personal encounter with him. He feels somehow unsatisfied with his knowledge or experience of God. Now, we read a moment ago the opening of Psalm 139. Let me read you the first verses here again that I think typify that knowledge of God coupled with a longing to know him. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David here is intimating no doubt in God's reality. In God's existence. He's exhibiting here full confidence and assurance of faith that God knows him, that God intimately knows him, that God understands him. God knows his words, God knows his thoughts, and he's greatly comforted by this fact. But what David doubts here is his own capacity to know God, He, in essence, is saying, I know a lot about you, God, but I'm not sure that I can know you. I'm not sure that I can know you in the way that you know me. When I think about you, my knowledge of you, it's too high, David says. I can't grasp it. I can't attain it. How do I know a God as vast as you, as expansive as you? How do I even conceptualize the one who has made all things? Even one who knows me as intimately as you do. I can't lay hold of that, David is saying, in the way that I would a friend, and I want that. These are precious thoughts about God. These are thoughts about God of a man who is filled with faith, a man who is overflowing with faith. His theology here is pure. It's right. It's true. It's comforting. It's reassuring. Many of you, I have no doubt, can relate to at least moments of spiritual rest like this. Moments when, for whatever reason, circumstantial or otherwise in your life, you taste a full assurance of God's presence, that he indeed is with you, that he indeed is caring for you, that he indeed is shaping the days of your life. And David here goes even further than that. He says, not only are you with me in all things, in all places, but you even define me in all ways. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. David says, all that I am is bounded by you. Even the number of my days is in your hand. You made me. You never leave me. You are a watchful attentive creator God. These are wonderful thoughts. Some might argue there's enough here for a soul-satisfying, deeply fulfilling life of faith. To know all this about God, shouldn't that be enough? That he formed you, that he superintends the days of your life. There's so much comfort and peace In that knowledge that you don't have to write your own story you don't have to create yourself you don't have to make much of yourself because God has already knit you together and is shaping you in the days as you live how precious to me are your thoughts O God how vast is the sum of them if I would count them they are more than the sand I awake, and I am still with you. David here has, in essence, worked himself into a dreamlike state. He is ecstatic with worship about the goodness and grandeur and wonder of God. Can I ask you, when an expression of faith like this, an assurance of faith like this, be enough for you if you could have it? If you could daily climb inside Psalm 139, would that be sufficient to satisfy the deepest longings of your soul? A full assurance and confidence in God's protective authorship of your life, God's definition of your being, that he holds you in his hand, knows where it is that he is leading you, that everything that happens in your life is under his watchful care. Is that the height of life with God? Is that as good as it gets? That's pretty good. I might take it. if I could daily have that assurance of faith. But I think I hear David even here longing for more. I think if you read these words carefully, there's a sense that he can't quite know this God who knows him. That he wants more. God's thoughts and works are too vast. Who is this God who authors all things? Who is this God who defines all being? How do I know Him in a personal way? It might be helpful for us, for you, to think about the human relationship in the here and now. That is closest for you? Who is the person that you know most? Maybe it's your spouse, or it's a close friend, or a parent, or a sibling, some other family member, perhaps. When you say that you know that person, what do you mean? When I say that I know my wife, I mean a lot more than I know what she does. I mean a lot more than I know how she thinks. I mean something like, and I struggle for words to describe it, I know the shape of her being. I know why she likes to be alive. I know what makes her tick. That's what it means to know someone personally. That's just barely getting onto the surface of the shore of what it means to know someone personally. There's so much involved in that when we come to understand someone's being. How could I ever know God like that? He's too vast. He's too involved in way too many stories. I know all the stories that my wife is involved in. You know all the stories that the person you are closest to is involved in. The stories that they were involved in before you knew them, they have relayed to you. You are amassing almost a total knowledge of that person's biography. That's why you know them. You know the story that shaped them. How can I possibly know God like that? This is a God who is intimately involved in the shaping of, say, a boy in the Shang Dynasty in ancient China, and is as involved in the life of a girl who lives among the aboriginal Australians, say, before the British arrived, and is equally involved in all of the lives of the children of this church and of the children of every house of belief and unbelief, That's just this world. Consider all the worlds his hands have made. How vast and awesome and unknowable is the source of all being and life? What possible way is there to knowing this God? In another psalm of David, Psalm 27, he writes, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You see, David wants more. He wants more than just being known by God. He wants more than just knowing the works of God, than just wondering and worshiping at the vastness of God. He wants more than just being defined by God. He wants to know God. Do you? Do I? Do we share in that hunger, that longing? Do you want to know who runs the world? Of course you do. Don't pretend you are so incurious as that. If you had opportunity to know this being, of course you would take it no matter your faith, tradition, religious background, atheistic tradition, whatever it may be, if you had opportunity to interact with him, you would jump at it, even if only to scream epithets at him, (laughs) which is an important part of knowing someone too. Now, there's an aspect to which we can start to get to know God by looking at the creation that he's made. We talked about that a little bit last week. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19 declares. But we cannot know God in the sense that we are talking of here from looking at the creation, from looking at the created order. Because everything about the created order while it was designed to reflect God to us, while he filled history with mirrors of all shapes and sizes to demonstrate different aspects of his character and creativity and beauty to us, all of those mirrors are damaged. All of those mirrors have been twisted or stretched or bent or distorted in some way. And so the light that comes to us, the light of God that comes to us by looking at the created order It's deformed. It's twisted. The revelation of God that we get from watching His world is a sort of half-truth. And all of us who were created to bear the image of God, which is to say reflect Him to the world, all of us are twisted and distorted and deformed in various ways. All of us are reflecting half-truth all the time. The aspects of our personality that are meant to betray the personality of God, to demonstrate the personality of God, they're twisted and distorted. The way that I love is a half-truth to the way that God loves. And the trouble is, we don't know which bits are lies. If you hang around me long enough, you might start to figure out some of that. (laughs) My wife laughs. Some mutual knowing going on there. But it's all deformed. All the mirrors that were meant to reflect him that have been placed into history, they're all twisted. And so we can't get at God in the way that we want. This is where you start, maybe, to see, where we start, maybe, to see, why we need Jesus. Because how can the transcendent God who is over all time and space reveal himself in time and space when all of the mirrors that he's placed there to do that with are shattered and bent? He can't unless he breaks in. He has to no longer merely reflect his light to us. He has to bring the very source of light to us. To bring the very source of light in such a way that he would live with us. Jesus is God in flesh. That is to say, Jesus is God in human boundaries. He's God limited to a specific time and space, a specific time and place. He's God confined to a single body. Jesus is God made knowable. That's who he is. And when Jesus came into the earth, he was known by many people. He was known closely by many people. There were many people for whom he was their closest relationship on the earth. And in Christ, in Jesus, in this Messiah, they were able to wrap their arms around God. They were able to grasp what was so vast and transcendent, now made local. Now offered in a way that I can talk to and share a meal with and have relationship with God confined to a single incarnational story so that I can know him in the way that I know everyone else. When I was first a Christian, 16, 17 years ago now, I remember being very jealous of those people who got that kind of access to God as to have lived in the time of Christ and by happy accident to have lived in direct proximity to Christ or even more so, friendship with Christ. Why did they get such privileged access to Jesus? I felt like David. The rest of us are out here knowing about God. Only a very small select few got to actually know him in a knowable way and interact with him in a personal way? Why did God determine to offer himself and reveal himself in that special way to so few people? Or at least, why wasn't one of those people me? (laughs) And then I had an interaction with an older Christian man who shared with me some of the words from another one of David's psalms, Psalm 68. And Psalm 68 is, it's a psalm of praise. It's a psalm that is celebrating another of the transcendent realities of God, that he rescues his people from their enemies It's a character trait of God that we see throughout the scriptures. But there's a strange prophetic verse tucked right in the middle of Psalm 68. It's verse 18. And therein David writes this strange prophetic statement. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that the Lord God may dwell there. Okay, in these words, David's longing to know God is coming to the fore. As he writes in Psalm 68 about God saving people out of this twisted and bent world that we all know, he utters prophetically that the crescendo of God's salvation, the height of God's salvation, is connected somehow to an ascension. He's saying here, in other words, God, you ascended from being among humanity, even the rebellious of humanity, so that the Lord God may dwell there. Now, David has in mind here the ascent of Mount Zion in ancient Jerusalem, where the temple was to be built, so that God might make himself known in that temple, might come to interact and be with his people in that temple. But in the New Testament, in the wake of Jesus' ascension, the Apostle Paul Reads these words in Psalm 68 and picks up some broader meaning in them, some prophetic meaning in them. And he quotes this verse in chapter 4 of his letter to the Ephesians, where he writes, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high and led a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. He's quoting there from Psalm 68. And then the Apostle Paul comments, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I want you to see this. Transcendent, unknowable God. Vast, limitless God. Sovereign author over all of the histories of men, women, and children, far too great to be known, descends into history, breaks into history in a knowable way, comes to us in a confined, limited, historical figure, the man, Christ Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, provides for us a way to know him and interact with him here on the earth in the way that we know and interact with everyone else. And then that knowable, historical, limited, local man, Christ Jesus, ascends into the heavenlies. Why? To fill all things. So the transcendent God becomes local and knowable, and then this local and knowable person, the Lord Jesus, transcends. Fills all things So that this knowable God is now in all things. This knowable God is now in every section of time and space. The Lord Jesus. If you want to know God. Jesus is here. A knowable, local, real person is here. He's here in this bread on these tables. And in the wine next to it. He's here in such a way that he will eat with you and have a meal with you. He's here in the gathered people of God. The scripture calls us the body of Christ. God is here in flesh and blood. He's here in you and he's here in me. Jesus is knowable. God is knowable. Jesus has been given. He has filled all things. He's here for us. And he's here to be known by us. God did not come on a grand errand when he broke into the world to fix all the broken mirrors. That's sort of what we would have preferred, isn't it? God, if you just came in and untwisted all the mirrors, then we could see you clearly again. That's what we spend a lot of our time trying to do. Untwist all the mirrors of this broken world. Untwist the mirror of myself. That way I can see God reflected clearly. That way I can know him rightly. But God didn't come to untwist mirrors. If you haven't noticed, they're all still broken. And he didn't come just to give us one new mirror. What good is it to stick one clean mirror in a funhouse circus of stretched, distorted mirrors? The light's already been bent. God didn't come to give us reflection anew. He came to bring us the very source of light. Look for him everywhere, and you'll find a God to be known. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the light come into the world. We thank you for Jesus, for his life and his death and his resurrection and all that it is now impregnating all of the bodies, all the flesh and blood of our world. Give us eyes of faith to see him, to know him, And through him to know you. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would lead us into that kind of relationship, that we'd enter into those kinds of relationships with each other, wherein we might be able to see and know this person manifest in one another. Help us to see Jesus in all people. To see Jesus in all things. And so to see what's true. Pray it in his name. Amen.